Amen. Thank you for the reading of that beautiful text, hard text. As we're going to uh, mention later in this sermon, it's amazing how proportionally how much of that text uh, deals with Judas and his, his story, uh, which is a reality in church life and in the life of being a Christian is, unfortunately, probably each of us knows someone who has fallen away, uh, who is no longer uh, following the faith. And it's part of, this, part of the story of the church, which will be part of today's sermon. Uh, but just to begin, if you're joining us this week and you maybe missed last week, we have now started a new series for the spring and the summer. Well, I guess it's the summer now, pretty much. The summer and the fall. Uh, going through the book of Acts. So we'll be going chapter by chapter through this really exciting book. Uh, we were in Mark for much of the spring, learning about the person of Jesus. And now we're looking to see, okay, Jesus has resurrected. Last week, we read about his ascension. This past Thursday was Ascension Day, 40 days after the resurrection. And now we're kind of looking around to say, now what? Once you see who Jesus is, when you see him in purity and in truth, you'll never be the same. And now the church has to figure out what its, what its role is. And that's what the early church was figuring out in this passage in Acts chapter 1. And so one of the ways we've organized this sermon series is around this phrase, God is on the move. God is on the move. And so I mentioned last Sunday of that phrase comes from the book of Narnia, the the Chronicles of Narnia, particularly the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the great lion Aslan is on the move and new life is springing up anywhere he goes. And as we go through the book of Acts, that's what we're looking for, is evidences of God on the move through his Holy Spirit, empowering his church for particular purposes, both in history and for today. The same spirit that lived in the earliest disciples' lives and and that empowered the earliest church empowers the church today and empowers believers today, empowers you and I, for those of us who trust in Jesus. And so this is an exciting series, I think, because we get to see how Jesus continues to do and teach all that he uh, began to do in the Gospels. So Jesus certainly is on the move, and the question now is, what now for the church? Why do we exist? What do we do? Today we see that Jesus uh, has left about 120 of his disciples, is what it says. But the Holy Spirit still hasn't come yet. Jesus commanded them to go and to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and this week is the in-between passage. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and we're going to learn about the coming of the Holy Spirit next week. So this is kind of the the in-between Sunday of what do you do when you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, um, but he's not here yet. What does the church do? How does the church operate? And so uh, several of you this morning have asked uh, about my wife, Sarah. She had a kind of a freak accident last week where she... uh, you had to have surgery this past week to repair a tendon in her foot. Just a really unfortunate incident. So we're missing her this week. But I wanted to tell a story with her permission as a sermon illustration for you. Sarah, again, I, don't, I haven't met all people in human history, but I'm pretty sure she's in the top one percentile of the most organized people in human history. She is a very organized person. And so I I asked permission if I could share this story. She said yes, but she has a twin sister. And her twin sister tells the story of how Sarah, as a kid, uh, had a junk drawer. You know, so you organize things, 
And then you have kind of one drawer where you throw things in to keep it messy. Except Sarah's twin tells the story of how Sarah's junk drawer was probably more organized than all the rest of ours organized drawers. Her junk drawer was organized. She had CDs that were lined up perfectly. She had jewelry in the original boxes. And she she even said that she put the paper on the bottom because paper doesn't go on top of things in the drawer. So Sarah is, and she's organized for a purpose. And she even says today, and my mother-in-law has been here helping care for our family this week. And they all say, with Sarah, everything has its place. So when you come into our house, everything has its correct place. It's organized. And it's organized for a purpose, so that we can live life orderly, so we can accomplish our purposes and live well and host well. And likewise, it's important for the church to be organized. And so today's sermon title is uh, The Church Organized for a Purpose. And so again, as the church is waiting for the Holy Spirit to come in these early days, what do they spend these 14 verses doing? A lot of what they're doing here is they're getting organized. And that's what I want to look at today. And when I say organized, for some of you, you you may be the exact opposite of Sarah. You may be in the, the other side of the percentile of Maybe organization just isn't a top priority for you. And that's okay. I'm not, I'm not going to jump into your dirty laundry and tell you to get everything cleaned up that way. But what I am going to show is the importance of, of the church being organized in some way. And so this isn't about the church being some kind of boxy, stodgy, uncreative, kind of unmoving cubicle. This is a, rather about the church being a creative community of empowered Holy Spirit-filled, transformed image-bearers of God who are unleashed for exponentially redemptive purposes in our world. And I think God desires the church to reflect himself, which is an orderly, organized, put-together movement of people that then can be unleashed for beautiful means. So just one more example of what this means. I like to think in sports metaphors. So let me use a sports metaphor for a second. I spent one year as a high school basketball coach when I was teaching overseas in Germany for one year. And um, basketball, if you're you're unfamiliar with the kind of the ins and outs of basketball, there actually, there are organized plays that most teams run to try to score points. It's not just, let's just pass it around in circles. Usually there's some kind of purpose. A coach draws up something and they try to run out of play. So the first half of our season, when I was kind of learning to be a basketball coach, I, I put together this offense in coordination with our other coach, and it was a very stodgy offense. Like everybody, like when you pass the ball here, these people go there. When the ball goes over there, everybody goes here. And it's, it was very precise, and it was very robotic. And under ideal circumstances, it probably could work. With high schoolers and a, a, a so-so coach, it didn't really work super well. So we got really frustrated. We weren't scoring a lot of points. And we were like, okay, we need to scratch this and figure out something new. So we discovered something called a motion-based offense, which is there's still an order to it. You pass it and people move. But there's a lot of room for freedom and flexibility for people to use their God-given athletic abilities, for people to on the fly see an opening and go to it. And it's more about motion. And we found a lot more success with a motion-based offense. And the result was more success, and it was more fun. And everyone felt more empowered. This combination of organization and movement actually reflects the orderliness of God. 
When you see in Genesis 1 and 2, you see God creating the world in a very orderly way. Day by day, and God created, and God created. And he set these things into motion. We've even read the last two Sundays, uh, little portions from Psalm 104, which is a very orderly uh, narrative of how God created the world. And then I think the book of Acts, God is doing a very similar thing. He's orderly setting up his church to move into the world in a systematic, but also spontaneous, fluid type of way. And so I'm going to give you, I think I have six quick points this morning. So it's a, it's a six-point sermon, which kind of sounds overwhelming, but I promise it won't be twice as long as my normal three-point sermons. They'll be shorter. But the main idea is this, that the church can spontaneously or most freely witness when it's most purposefully organized. And so let's see how the church does this in Acts 1, 12 to 26. Here's the first point, verses 12 and 13. The church is organized by being obedient. The church's organization starts by being obedient. Look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then all the disciples, it mentions, are there. This is important. The disciples were not in Jerusalem when Jesus said, you need to remain in Jerusalem. So when he left and they went up and when Jesus went up into heaven and the angel comes to them and says, what are you still doing looking up in the sky? They said, oh, yeah, we got to get to Jerusalem. And they were obedient. That's the first step. They were obedient. They listened to the words of Jesus. Uh, It was ringing in my ears a little bit this week when uh, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, this is early on in the gospel narrative, and he looks at the disciples and he says, if you want to go somewhere else and follow someone else, you're free to do so. And do you remember what the apostle Peter said? John 6, 68. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We will listen listen to you, Jesus. So they go on this Sabbath day journey to the Mount of Olives, which is probably a three to five hour walk. So it's pretty far. It's not just a hop, skip and a jump. It's a pretty good little walk. Uh, And they they take the same walk that Jesus often took from the Mount of Olives to uh, Jerusalem. So they knew the walk pretty well, probably. And they, they hightailed it there and they got to Jerusalem. And they went up to an upper room, maybe the same upper room where they had the Last Supper. Who knows? It doesn't tell us for sure. But I think it's probably pretty likely, somewhere that they knew pretty well. But the point is, is that they were obedient to the command from Jesus and from the angel. And it mentions the 11 disciples with the obvious one notable missing exception, which is Judas, who we'll mention later. But the first point is that, is that the church is organized by obedience And the same call is true for us today. Obedience to Jesus marks the church. May we be found to be obedient to Jesus as well as we organize ourselves for his mission. But what about next? What do they do in the upper room? So look at verse 14. This is the second point. The church is organized under prayer. So the church is organized by obedience. Secondly, it's organized under prayer. Verse 14 It says all of these, it mentions the 11 disciples, 
with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, says, Do not have your concert first and then tune your instruments afterward. Begin your day with prayer, is his plea. And I think you can apply that to life. Begin your life with prayer. Begin your ministry with prayer. Begin any plan you have with prayer, because that's the tuning of your instruments to be prepared to play a beautiful concert of any kind. Javier, I'm sure, would love to tune this piano as much as he can so that it can sound as best as possible uh, to prepare himself to, to present it well. And so prayer is the tuning of the Christian. The church must be known as the prayer capital of the world. Jesus says, my house is to be a house of prayer. It's mission headquarters. Prayer comes before planning. It has to. And so when we make decisions like what we're about to after the service of maybe bringing in more missionaries, we best be sure to pray that through heavily so that we know we're doing what God's Spirit wants us to do. And may that be the case of all the things we do in the church. The earliest primary activity of the church was prayer and devoting themselves to prayer. It doesn't tell us what they were praying for, um, but you can imagine they probably were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which they knew was promised to come soon. They went to Jerusalem in obedience and they were praying I'm sure that the Holy Spirit would become, but I'm sure they also were praying for direction about what to do next. It's like, okay, we've listened, we've been obedient, we're sitting here in Jerusalem, we're in the upper room. God, show us the way. Again, Jesus is not with them anymore. Their leader, their rabbi, their savior. He's not physically with them in person. They're on their own. But surely Jesus is listening to their prayers at this point and guiding them. And it says that they had this extreme unity. It says they were one accord. This is the 11 disciples, plus it says the women, which we can presume is the same ones that have been mentioned in the Gospels. So at least Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, probably others. And then Jesus' mother, Mary, plus Jesus' four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And then it it expands and it says there probably were 120, so certainly there were a lot more. But this is the beauty of the church display. They all were one accord. Men, women, young, old. All of them were together, devoting themselves to prayer. Together is that key word. A.W. Tozer, a theologian, says this. He says, 100 worshipers meeting together, or for our case, 50 Fifty worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are nearer in heart to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What does that mean? It means that when we're gathered together here in worship and in prayer, what we've done this morning and under God's word, his scripture, we are actually closer together in unity than if we were actually trying to be unified by having a fellowship time. We're closer together right now in this very moment. And that's what the disciples and the women and the brothers were like in that upper room. So the church is organized under prayer. After obedience and prayer, then what is needed? Third point, verse 15, it says, And in those days, 
Peter stood up from among the brothers, about 120, and he began to talk. Clear leadership. The church is organized through clear leadership. You see, Peter, before this, was known as kind of the, the, the rebellious one, the one who was always kind of jumping ahead too quickly and kind of making the mistakes and, and being the, the presumptuous one. But you recall Matthew 16, Jesus looks at Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And he's looking at Peter, looking at the confession that Peter had just made that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus saw that confession as the rock that he will build his church. But I think he also saw a forward that Peter would be the one that would stand up from among the brothers and get the things started. He lives into his calling from Jesus, and he becomes, really, for the next 13 chapters, the primary character in the story of Acts. He's the one that's going before the brothers. He's the one giving speeches, and he's the one helping lead the way. But as I emphasize one person that stands up here in verse 15, let me go deeply out of the way to say the church is not about one person. Never has been, never will be. All levels of leadership in the church are important. And we learn in the book of Acts that it takes everyone to be the church. The church is not about one great pastor. It's not about one celebrity preacher. It's not about the Pope. It's not about one person. It's about Jesus as the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And then his followers are the church. Deacons, which are mentioned in Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. Elders and overseers, mentioned in Acts 14 and 15 and 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Pastors in 1 Timothy as well. And certainly many more gifts that have been given to the church. Gifts given to us by grace in Romans 12, like prophecy, serving, teaching, exhorting, generosity, zeal, mercy, and above all, love. This is what the church is organized under. Through clear leadership. The church needs leaders desperately. And may we be found to be those kinds of leaders. Church leadership is about the whole body. But ultimately though, it's about being under Jesus. The chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. Number four. Again, we're moving quickly through these six points. Number four, the church is organized in God's plan. And the verses I'm going to point you to for that one is the falling away of Judas passage, verses 16 to 20. The church is organized in God's plan. Part of God's plan was that Judas would fall away, that Judas would turn him over because it was necessary for Jesus to be turned over, to be crucified. It's amazing, like I said earlier, proportionately, you know, four or five of the verses out of these 15 is devoted to the guy who falls away. We didn't get four or five verses on Peter, the one who stood up and took leadership. We get four or five verses of the one guy that is now dead and that and is, is gone away from Jesus. And this is to show that God had a plan for Judas all along, but it also is to show that God had a plan for his church all along. The church perseveres through difficulty and even betrayal. And like I said at the beginning, all of us have been betrayed probably or felt a betrayal in the church. The church 
can cause wounds. People who have have claimed Jesus have, have caused deep cuts in our life. And that's even part of the story that God allows the church to experience. In Luke 22, it talks about uh, uh, how Satan demanded Peter to be sifted like wheat. And I think God has designed that even for each of us, that each of us would be sifted to a certain extent uh, and to be challenged. And so when you face discouragement and you face trial, uh, or when something comes your way that provides a serious bump in your spiritual road, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. Peter writes later in his own letter. He says, but rejoice that you're counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the sake of the name, which it says later in Acts. There's something to be said about rejoicing and suffering actually as a, as a sign that, that God is, is using and persevering his church. My, my kids and I have been watching the movie Raya and the Last Dragon. I knew, I knew Nora would look at me when I said this. We've watched the movie Raya and the Last Dragon the last few weeks, which is a brand new Disney princess movie. It's about a, a, a princess girl and a dragon, and they're trying to save uh, their world. And there's one line that, again, if you listen up deeply and, and to pretty much anything, you can find little breadcrumbs of the gospel. Rhea says at one point, the world is broken. You can't trust anybody. And Sisu, the dragon, says, maybe it's broken because you don't trust anybody. And so... I'm sure we could look at Judas and say, yeah, that's a reason why we can't trust the church is because there's Judases in the church. And maybe even these 11 brothers were thinking that as well. But God is trustworthy because his unfailing promises are in his word that nothing will ever overtake the church. The gates of hell will never overcome it, even despite betrayers like Judas, even despite false prophets and those that pain us today that infiltrate the church. It's a reality. It's a tough passage to preach on, um, but we will have more examples as we preach through the scriptures as the months go on. God's promises are unfailing, and his word is ever true. Let's keep moving. Point number five, verses 21 and 22, the church is organized. Ultimately, and this is the center point of the gospel, the church is organized because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church did not exist before Jesus. The nation of Israel existed. Synagogues existed. Places of prayer existed. But the church as a movement of people did not exist before Jesus rose from the dead. So verses 21 and 22, it says, So then, because Judas has fallen away, we have, a, we have an opening, basically. One of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So what is the purpose of the church? To be a witness to the resurrection. A witness to the resurrection. So the man that's about to get chosen to be a witness had to be one who was with Jesus the whole time. Who saw his life. Who saw his death. Who saw his resurrection. And could then be a leadership witness going forward. And the church is then organized because of this resurrection. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there's really two aspects to this. Number one is we look back to see what Jesus has done. You look at his, at his resurrection and you give witness to it. And then number two is you look forward 
to what Jesus is going to do through his Holy Spirit. Both of those are aspects of being a witness. Your witness of the resurrection back in history and your witness of how the resurrection is changing the world going forward. And that's where you and I find our purpose, right? We look back to 2,000 years ago and we're witnesses to the resurrection because of the validity of the word of God. And we're witnesses to God on the move today and what he's doing all around us in our midst. Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, Peter stands up at one point and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We are witnesses uh, as his people. Number six, the church is organized finally as God's chosen people. As God's chosen people. So ultimately, they put, they put before uh, them two people, Barsabbas and Matthias. And it says they just devoted themselves to prayer. They were listening to God. They sought each other's counsel. And then it says they ultimately cast lots, which is basically the modern day equivalent of rolling the dice. And they said, God, show us which one of the two is the one that you choose. Show us which one is your person. Both of them are qualified. We've discerned that these two are the two that that could be your chosen one to fill the space. Now show us which one. And isn't it just great that we can rely on a God who chooses better than we can choose? That ultimately we can put two good options before God and say, God, I don't know which one's right, but you've proven yourself to be a great choice maker in life and in human history. You chose the nation of Israel out of all the nations to declare your glory, and it worked. You chose to pursue sinful people instead of righteous people to to proclaim your glory, and it worked. You chose to use uh, so many upside-down means to to declare your glory, and it's always worked. As we read earlier to the children, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses perfectly. And when we trust in his choices and put ourselves truly before him with options and say, God, show the way, he shows the way. He shows the clear option. And that is his grace and his abundant provision for the church. Like I put on the front of the bulletin today, this quote by Henry Nouwen, who's just a great contemplative Christian writer. He says, the great joy of being chosen is the discovery that others are chosen as well. So when we think about terms like predestination or concepts like Calvinism or this this theological construct of God's divine choice, All those things you can find theologically in the scriptures, but the point is not to be puffed up and say, look, I'm a chosen one of God. Look at me. I'm I'm something. The point is that God has chosen you and he's chosen others as well. And that's the true delight and joy of being chosen is that you're being chosen into a church. And the church is organized as chosen people that God is bringing together with all these multifaceted gifts so that they may be a witness to the resurrection. And that's the last point. The church is organized for the purpose of witnessing. And this goes back to Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit will empower you 
to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Peter says later in his writing, God chose you so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why the church exists. And next week when we come back, we get to see the church uh, empowered with the Holy Spirit that they've been waiting on and then pushed out into the world. And the rest of the book of Acts is just God on the move, one chapter after another, doing extraordinary things. So as I finish up, um, let me finish up with this this little short uh, section. This is from a a theologian who, who says you can look at the history of the world in five acts. So not, not the book of acts, but five acts, kind of like a play. He says, act one is creation. Act two is the fall, Genesis three. Act three is the story of Israel. Act four is Jesus. Act five, the first scene is the New Testament. And act five, the second scene is the church. We are in the second scene of act five, which is the church. And ultimately, he he has this quote, and this is what he says. He says, The act in which we are now living, in which we are to make our own unique, unscripted, and yet obedient improvisation. This is how we are to be the church for the world. Unscripted improvisation, leaning heavily on the work of the Holy Spirit, is indwelling in our lives. And ultimately, trusting in the Holy Scriptures which we're going to sing about in our final song as the church's one true foundation. So the church is organized as witnesses by obedience, under prayer, through clear leadership in God's plan, because of the resurrection, to be his witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you as your church, the Salem chapter of your church, part of your global story. We ask that you would show us the way. Show us how to be your church. Show us how to organize ourselves so that we might freely and spontaneously be your witnesses to our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.